once I went through my Ibogaine experience and realized that I hadn't been in my body for 29 years, it like opened up all the trauma I had been carrying. So I went from this fully focused work performance service oriented human to being like, oh my goodness, I haven't thought about me in 15 years, nor have I felt any emotion in 15 years. You know, I was just in my head, totally cerebral lawyer mode. So it's been a difficult sort of unlearning and learning of being like, okay, you do love your job. You are in a great field, but you need to go within for a while so that your cup can be full to help other people. Welcome to the Modern Psychedelics Podcast. Thank you so much for being here and choosing to spend some time with me today. I'm your host, Lana. This is the place where we explore how modern humans can work with psychedelics and plant medicine to engage more deeply with life. You can expect balanced and grounded conversations around therapeutic, spiritual, and recreational containers. All right, let's journey. Okay, I don't know about you, but I cannot stop hearing about Kana. It's a succulent plant medicine from South Africa. Kana has been traditionally used by the indigenous Khoisan people for mood enhancement, stress relief, and spiritual practices. Kana is an empathogen, so it helps us to emphasize feelings of connectedness, open-heartedness, and calm. Some call it nature's MDMA, and some consider it a psychedelic, though pharmacologically it's not a classic psychedelic. But the best part of Kana is that it's completely legal in North America and sold as a safe health product. I'm actually on a Kana microdose today as I record this, and I'm exploring it as a supportive tool to shift my energy from high high summer energy to more relaxed, productive fall energy. So this protocol is all about slowing down and rebuilding supportive habits and connection to myself so that I can have more intentional days. Kana can be consumed via chewing, smoking, or making tea, but for the modern person, an extract is an easy and reliable choice because extracts are the most potent, reliable, and convenient option. Kana Extract Co. is leading the way in creating quality, potent extracts. Their cutting-edge extraction process ensures absolute purity and the precise alkaloid profiles. For you, this means unparalleled potency and the amazing felt effects. Kana Extract Co. also ethically sources their products, which is so important to me, working with growers who uphold benefit-sharing agreements with traditional knowledge keepers. Their benefit-sharing agreements showcase a dedication not just to product quality, but also to preserving and supporting the cohesion culture. I love that Kana Extract Co. is transparent about quality. They provide third-party lab testing and credentials like FDA inspection and GMP certification. You can easily access these reports on their website. So join me and start your Kana journey today. Visit KanaExtract.com and you can use Lana at checkout to save 10%. That's KanaExtract.com, K-A-N-N-A Extract.com and use Lana, L-A-N-A at checkout to save 10% off your first order. You guys are going to love this medicine. Okay, back to the episode. Hello and welcome back to the Modern Psychedelics Podcast. I am so happy to have you here. It's such a joy to share this space with you and thank you so much for listening. Today I have a returning guest, Courtney Barnes, was on the podcast back in March 2021 when I started the podcast. So it's been almost two and a half years and wow, I would actually recommend going back and listening to that episode, episode six, because 
Courtney has grown so much since then, you know, as we all have. And it's one of my favorite things in life to reflect on our journeys. And we're doing that a little bit today. I'm just going to read Courtney's bio. So Courtney Barnes is a devoted social justice attorney and trailblazer in drug policy reform. She serves as counsel at the law firm Fieldman Legal Advisors, where she specializes in advising clients on compliance and risk management in emerging industries. In addition to her legal practice, Courtney provides a variety of advisory services in the psychedelic ecosystem. She serves as the policy advisor for the Mind Army, general counsel for the Society for Psychedelic Outreach and Education, and advisory board member of Heroic Hearts Project. As you can see, Courtney is deeply ingrained in the psychedelic space. She was also a lead drafter of Denver's psilocybin decriminalization initiative and has extensive experience drafting state and local policy relating to the regulation of cannabis and psychedelics. She is licensed to practice law in California, Colorado, and Texas. So you can see that Courtney is quite the professional in the space. And we definitely talk today about some policy and regulatory updates that we've seen in recent years. But before we get to that, we actually drop in with Courtney about what she's been up to. And it turns out she's been up to a lot on the personal journey side of things. So she shares that she went through an ibogaine experience. So this is the active alkaloid ibogaine inside of the iboga root. So it's a similar but different experience to iboga, but it is, it's a big medicine. And she talks about how this really cracked everything open for her. And she came out of that being like, wow, I thought I was well-versed in the psychedelic world. I thought I was fine. I thought I was good. I didn't think I had anything to heal and I'm not okay. And I need help and I need to take a break from everything and just go inward. And she shares a little bit about what that journey has been like for her. And then we do some reflection on how this journey of healing and like really going deep with psychedelics has been like so crucial for Courtney as a policy maker and a regulatory advocate in the space because she didn't really understand before just how important prep and integration are. And now she does. And she talks about how her experiences have informed the way that she approaches her work. So some of the things we talk about are how ibogaine um, treatment catalyzed her spiritual awakening, how she's been learning to trust life and the universe, um, taking a step back uh, from work while going inward to heal trauma, and learning to go beyond logic as a lawyer. So this is going to be really useful for those of us who live in our mind, which is pretty much everyone. <laughs> um, and then the second half of the episode, we get into those updates on legalization and decriminalization of psychedelics, how voter initiatives have been changing the psychedelic legal landscape. We talk about the Oregon model, accessibility to psychedelic therapy. And then we also talk about, this was really interesting to me, some updates in law enforcement implementation of decrim policies and where harm reduction, psychoeducation, preparation, and integration fit into policy. So it's a wonderful conversation. And I'm so proud of Courtney for being, you know, brave and coming on and sharing this personal side of her story. It's 
not something that we often see from professionals in the space. And I think that connection between personal experience and professional experience with psychedelics is so important. And it was really fun to explore that with Courtney. So enjoy this episode. Reach out to Courtney if you want to get in touch with her. If you enjoy this episode or if you think it would be useful for someone, maybe a professional or just anyone who would be inspired by hearing Courtney's story, please share it with a friend. Please share it on social media. That really helps the show grow organically and make sure to tag me. I'll be sure to reshare, get in touch with me. I love to hear from you guys. And if you want to stay in touch on a little bit more of a personal note, sign up for my mailing list, which can be found on my website linked in the show notes. All right. I love you so much. Thank you again for being here and I'll catch you in the episode. Miss Courtney Barnes, welcome back to the show. It's been over two years since you were last on. You were like one of our OG guests. Thank you. I know it's been <laughs> lifetimes, honestly. <laughs> yeah. And we were just chatting a little bit before and I haven't heard too much because I want to like catch up on the air. But you were recently at Reunion in Costa Rica. I would love to hear about that because I did a few episodes about my experience there. So I'm sure listeners would love to hear about how it went for you as well. Yes. So it's my actually two week anniversary, if you count sort of Thursday night being the last night where you sit with the medicine. But it was divinely orchestrated. I actually won the trip at the MAPS conference. I was at the veterans dinner with a client who is a company comprised of veterans and Got the little dinner time uh, raffle ticket and it was 136. And so I held on to it, got my passport renewed. I wasn't really sure where I wanted to go. And then things sort of fell into place for me to attend at the beginning of August. And it was wonderful. It honestly really upped the standard for my retreat experience. It's this beautiful beach resort, you know, air-conditioned rooms, so you get the sort of Western comfort, <laughs> but also very focused yeah. on like the indigenous lineage and tradition and and wisdom there. It was, it was the perfect blend for me as someone who's had some ayahuasca experience, but has never gone to Peru or anything purely in the jungle or things like that. And I thought it was a great balance of uh, professionalism and ancestral knowledge. And you sat with ayahuasca. What was the lineage that you I was with? I was doing the Shipibo medicine. What was your experience? So it was related to the Shipibo medicine. The shaman wasn't from there exactly, but it was very much the teaching with a little bit of flair. His name is Tatu Anu and really wonderful. Still had the Ikaros and we sat in the what is the name for it? Essentially, the sweat lodge, which the they temple. added to it. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it was really, it was absolutely wonderful. I had never had the Icaros experience while sitting with ayahuasca. It had always been sort of like pre-recorded music or playing along with pre-recorded music. So it really made a big difference. Yeah. So special. And isn't there a team like Karina and Julian? And I'm sure you met Mariana and um, yeah, everyone. Aren't they just amazing? They're angels. They're absolute angels. They really and you are. could feel that energy while they were singing and being part of the ceremony and just their non judgment and yeah. support and really calm, quiet, present. Oh, you end up talking more. Mm-hmm because they're just such like a safe space. It was a very safe space. I felt very safe and open. And it was one of those experiences where you went in there 
I had my own room um, because I, that's some of the work that I like to do is be by myself. Kind of went in there when there was about 20 people and thought, I have very little in common with any of these people. And by the end of it, you're all best friends. And actually there were a few random synergistic connections. I had a cousin of one of my old friends from college there who responded when there was a picture of us and someone I was supposed to be on a panel with. So it's pretty magical how the universe brings people together for exactly what you need at the time. But the team there is awesome. I really like the nonprofit model and how they're giving yeah. back. And I highly recommend that I actually uh, hope I think my mom's going to go sometime this year. So I'm very excited about that. Amazing. I'm so happy to hear that you had a positive experience. What were some of the themes that you got into when explored within yourself with the medicine? It was honestly, and we'll talk, I'm sure a little bit about this, but I went into it with a lot of fear because I have had some pretty in a way, re-traumatizing psychedelic experiences where I've had repressed things from childhood and just difficult scenarios and not really had the uh, preparation or wisdom to experience those journeys from a detached or, or separated perspective where I've been very much re-experiencing those things. So I kind of in a rough place emotionally and and wanted some guidance on, you know, my relationships and my purpose at work and professionalism. And but I had a lot of fear come up. And they you know the journey starts pretty much as soon as you sign up to go. And I and I very much felt that where the week before was all sorts of emotions. But it was so loving and beautiful and sequential from night one to night four was very much like healing my womb and my divine feminine and just the, being the essence of love and my perfect being on earth to love and heal and love myself and seeing myself as this divine light being it was almost like fantasy like in a way but it was very much like balancing my divine feminine and my divine masculine and just honoring my body the first night was very physical and felt very much like i mentioned like womb healing and powerful and feminine and then the second night was bliss just like the most divine love i've ever experienced it it was incredible and then the third night was like an interesting lesson because I have these sort of death and rebirth experiences similar to being on 5-MeO DMT and I'm comfortable with those. I actually really enjoy those because it does feel like such an energetic reset. But when I was doing my intentions the second time, I left out my body. I was like, I wanted like a you know, mind, spirit, soul, emotional rebirth and like finish where night two was. And what... A lesson that was because my body totally rejected the medicine. It was like, oh, if you're not thinking that we're important, huh? And I had more than I did before. And it just was like very uncomfortable, but but pretty profound in like the wisdom that it was saying, which was honor your body. This is an equally important part of the process here. And you can't just be all ethereal and want to have your spiritual experience and not be grounded and respectful of your temple. And so while that one was not as enjoyable, it was still provided some depth. And I made an apology to someone who I thought I had already 
made amends with, but it was very much like an ego passive tit for tat apology. And the ayahuasca taught me and showed me that I needed to sincerely apologize. So that was, a, so night three was a bit more like an ego done and a humbling experience. And then night four was tying it all together, which was just like a graduate and like, look how far you can come. And there's no need to be afraid now because not that you've done it as if my work is over, but just that you, you can rest now. And it was so beautiful. Wow. It was really beautiful. And then now the like real work starts where um, yeah. you're journaling and you still have your intrusive thoughts and your anxiety and things like that. Or my, excuse me, my anxiety and my intrusive thoughts. But at least I have space in between them to have that awareness and kind of stop myself mm-hmm. and say, you totally made that up, huh? Where did that come from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and in a way, like, we're human, we're always going to have to deal with those intrusive thoughts of the mind. But it is that space that plant medicine allows us to have that puts us at a choice point about, okay, I'm observing it now, and I'm aware of it now. So I'm not reacting to it. I'm more like, what do I want to do with this? And that's really the work. Absolutely. That's so well put. And I got off of bands or Adderall, uh, essentially, a little bit less than a year ago and that was like one of my big take-home things with ayahuasca was how grateful i was to finally have space between my thoughts it didn't yeah. heal or correct or however you want to phrase it all of my pattern but i ha- but at least i can yeah. not get wrapped up in it so easily and so that's a blessing mm-hmm. if anything if nothing mm-hmm. else <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned that you had an experience with Ibogaine last year. I'm curious, was there teaching of like the bleedy wisdom within that container? Because the mind and those thoughts are such a huge part of that. So what was your experience like with that? Drastically different. It was a big, (laughs) honestly, Ibogaine did catalyze my spiritual awakening. It made me believe in God after a teenage and young adulthood of feeling like there's no way that there could be a presence or like that because why would life be this way? And I began providing such a profound intelligence, almost in an intense sort of unnerving way for me in the sense that it showed me essentially all of the pain I had been carrying. I didn't go in the like future or have any real galactic experience. It was very much like a montage of my trauma. And it was at a point in my psychedelic journey where I wasn't prepared to detach myself from what I was experiencing. So I very much went back to that ashamed, scared little girl. And I met my inner child, but we both scared the hell out of each other so it was like the beginning of a rebirth it was that in essence was a true rebirth that that i had just been living so unconsciously for so long and i was you know have a was a good person but i just had no idea and was very unaware and i woke me up to all of the work that i've been doing for the past year and so it was a very difficult experience for me but one of the greatest things to ever happen to me in my life and, and absolutely part of my soul journey. And that it, it like, awakened me to my soul again. And, and that's really beautiful. 
But no, it was very much like a rewind of my life and very focused. And I think I also sort of shocked myself where I probably forgot a lot of the journey too because I was so enmeshed in in the painful parts. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I feel such a deep resonance with everything you're saying. Our journeys have been very parallel. I think you said something really interesting about it made me believe in God because I grew up thinking like, well, if God is real, then why is life like, why is there all this shit that we have to deal with? So I'm curious. Yeah, like from that paradigm, it's very like God is good and only good. Like If God were real, wouldn't everything be good and loving? I'm curious, how is it that you understand God now? It's an evolving relationship, but it's so beautiful to finally like get in touch with your intuition and the synchronicities and just the connected nature of life as one big soul lesson and journey. And I was talking to someone earlier this morning actually about that. And you know, you can have different perspectives on reincarnation and karma and all of those things. But the way that I have been able to best use that experience is to go with the philosophy that we as souls pick our family and we pick our challenges and our life experiences to focus on the lessons that we signed up to learn during this lifetime. And I, I do believe that we do carry certain karmic lessons from previous incarnations if we don't learn those lessons. But in handling the shame and embarrassment or anger that I felt about different experiences in my life or people in my life that I couldn't wrap my head around otherwise was that we as these spiritual beings pick these lessons for our highest growth and so and, and that's helped me have a lot more acceptance with things but the more you can zoom out the more i've just realized that everything is really perfect and it's really hard to maintain that perspective but it all happens it all happened in perfect order and timing and and you just it is if you can have that awareness and at least curiosity to so why is this happening for me um that's been really helpful for me. Yeah, everything has a reason if we make a reason for it, like if we can find the greater purpose rather than looking for someone or something to blame, then that's really where we can grow and learn and fulfill those karmic paths if that's what we're on. I, yeah, exactly. I balance between being present with life and that's all it is, is it's supposed to be fun. And now, and then the like, the lesson behind everything and we do have so much information on spirituality and, and science and all of these things where it is hard to have to just figure out what works for you and what makes and yeah. you feel most present and trusting of, of the universe. And I do believe we create our own hell or heaven on earth. Mm -hmm. That's the way that I can try to make the most of every moment mm -hmm. with a trusting perspective. Trust has been like a big journey on my since my spiritual awakening has been like learning to trust and be in the unknown without doubting or fear we're still learning those lessons, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> May we continue learning them. Yeah, you definitely have a new glow about you. I can feel a new resonance in the way that you're speaking and a new conviction in the way that you're speaking. Um, since the last time we spoke, I'm curious, 
what's been going on for you professionally and with your career and with your involvement in the psychedelic industry um, simultaneously through this spiritual awakening? Yes, it's been really interesting. Luckily, I am with a wonderful law firm, Feldman Legal Advisors. It's a New York-based firm that provides cannabis and psychedelics full-scope business and policy services. And that's been incredible because I have a supportive base to not just be in the grind. I get to work with clients I really care about and have a boss and mentor that really cares about me. So that's been a blessing because once I went through my Ibogaine experience and realized that I hadn't been in my body for 30 years or 29 years um then I it like opened up all the trauma I had been carrying so I went from this fully focused work performance service oriented human to being like oh my goodness I haven't thought about me in 15 years especially being on Vivance like nor have I felt any emotion in 15 years I was just in my head, totally cerebral lawyer mode. So it's been a difficult sort of unlearning and learning of being like, okay, you do love your job. You are in a great field, but you need to focus. You need to go within for a while so that your cup can be full to help other people. And so it did this sort of temporary, but pretty massive like course correct where I was very sort of in hermit mode and reclusive and went through a dark night of the soul of sorts with a pretty severe depression and this like unlearning and, and relearning of, of life as it is. So I spent most of the past, or I guess I would say six months from August to February, really focusing on getting myself back in alignment and getting to know myself and working sort of processing those repressed emotions. And now through the this year and spring to summer of getting back out there and being like, okay, I can give back again. And we've done some wonderful things in the interim. I still work with a lot of nonprofits, Hurric Arts Project and the My Coalition and the Mind Army. And mm. I'm very committed to helping the advocacy work that's happening in the country. And, and I've done some cool policy projects, but you know, to be totally honest, I needed to work on me for a year and we'll see what happens going forward. I am still very passionate about the policy reform movement. As, as being on this path as a leader in the space and walking the path of abuse and healing, there was no other way out. I was burning at both ends. I, I, had no, I had nothing left to give for a while. Sounds like you really reached your tipping point where there was no choice but to focus on yourself and go inwards. And yeah, it is pretty blessed and amazing that being a professional, a lawyer, you were granted the opportunity to lean into that. I think that's a really cool testament to what's going on in the professional working world right now. And it's a testament to just like, if you ask and are looking and they're seeking help and guidance from your relationships and and God, however you want to call it, like it will be provided. And things magically slowed down for me during that time. And I had you know, a lot of 
fear of I'm not doing enough or I'm going to get fired or I'm not going to be relevant anymore and all of these sort of egoic fears. But when the energy came back, the opportunities came back. And I think that's how you have to think about things is that I wouldn't have been able to give 100% at the time. And and the people that are should should be having those opportunities at that time. And, and mine will come to me when I'm ready. And so, so yeah, and, and super grateful for the psychedelics movement to be happening as it is and and for lawyers and and all sorts of professionals that are authentically committed to that path and in more than just a profitability sense but also in a helping people sense and feldman's been really supportive of that i mean i really commend you for taking that i call it like a sacred pause um for taking that time because it allowed you to really reflect and come back from a place of deeper integrity where like you really are walking the talk like you're supporting and advocating for these healing experiences through psychedelics but you've also gone and done that for yourself now so i can only imagine that that would greatly impact the way that you show up for work so how has the sacred pause informed the way that you've come back to work and the way that you're approaching your work now? I have a much greater reverence for the journey. I think when I started, I was in cannabis and psychedelic my whole legal career and always had that want to change and better the world mentality and had a variety of psychedelic experiences casually, but didn't really understand like the gravity of that work as well as the beautiful fractal geometric bliss states that I could provide. I'd really only had great positive experiences. And so I began with that first reality check of these things are, these compounds are medicine while they can provide, and I began not so much on the recreational side, but while they can provide euphoric and, and blissful and fun recreational experiences, like we need to take their power very seriously because that was the kind of connotation was She's the psychedelic lawyer, you know, she's she's experienced, she's good. And then I came out of that being like, I am not good. I'm not okay. And I need help. And so it it has provided me like a much more a lot more wisdom when it comes to the policy work that I do and also the way that I talk and provide my perspective and influence on psychedelic use and access because I I had to have those experiences. In order to, in order to, yeah, to be a leader in the space, I believe, I think it's really critical to understand the dynamic and nuances of psychedelic use. And so now I have that experience and humility when, when thinking of how can we get these compounds to as many people as we can in as safe and supportive and thoughtful way as we can. Because, yeah, as we touched on in the beginning, the post ceremony is, is where it really gets, um, where it can get quite messy. Yeah. Yeah, that really is so touching. What would you say to people who are listening right now that are in a similar situation that you were a year ago, where like they do on one hand feel so much drive and motivation and inspiration and fire to change the world and make the world a better place, but then also are maybe feeling like they haven't gone there with themselves yet? You know, we go back to the human experience. No one's perfect. We're all trying our best to the extent our consciousness, you know, at the level we're at. And I think, you know, know thyself is a lifetime journey, but it's important to 
at least ask those questions and start to do to have that curiosity and and to be self-aware because it's just we're in such a delicate time and space with these compounds and it's moving so quickly that people just we just need to be thoughtful of other people and not just ourselves and our own journey so what works for me may not work for you and and I think integration, preparation, and administration programs need to need to encompass all of that. Yeah, I think to be leaders, we first need to know how to lead ourselves. Yes. Right? We first need to know how to lead our own energy before we can lead others. And I think when we do go on that journey of learning how to lead ourselves, we actually naturally become leaders for those around us just by being ourselves. How do you approach leadership? How do you think about leadership, this word that kind of dropped in a few times today? It's a position of trust, I think, for me, is how I would consider it. And I, in your statement on mastery of self, or at least control and respect and understanding of self is so critical because that's been the big thing is, is when people trust leaders, it's a position of power in the sense that people are listening to you and making the agreement to believe you generally and to trust you and to take your information for their own journeys. And I think that's a real privilege in thinking about my own lack of trust for myself and my lack of trust for others and and how that journey has changed. I think I'm like less interested in being a leader in the objective sense, but I know that I can I have accountability and sincerity and authenticity in what I say. So while everything I say may not be true, or true for you, I have that integrity within myself and, and knowing that at least I'm speaking from my heart and I'm speaking my truth where if you don't know yourself, then you have no, you have no idea. <laughs> and that was a big thing was like just accepting information as fact. And um, as a lawyer, we're trained to be so intellectual and analytical, but almost in some ways it can be to a detriment because you're listening with a narrow lens and I think this journey of trusting has also helped me be more open-minded when it comes to listening too. So here's my not-so-secret secret. <laughs> the number one tool in my toolkit, the thing that has changed my life for the better the most, aside from psychedelics, of course, is not therapy. It's not breath work. It's not meditation. It's not even the yoga I've been doing for 15 years. It's coaching. Because coaching is the most actionable tool that I have come across. A few years ago, I fired my therapist and hired a coach. And working with a coach helped me start moving in the direction I wanted to move. And I finally stopped feeling stuck. I fell so in love with coaching, even though I wanted to become a therapist at that time, I decided instead to get trained and certified as a professional coach. As a psychedelics-informed life coach, I work with people who are on the psychedelic path, which is probably you if you're listening to this podcast. The Global Coaching Client Study from the International Coaching Federation shows most clients who work with a professional coach report improved work performance, more growth and opportunities, greater self-confidence, enhanced relationships, more effective communication skills, better work and life balance, and an improvement in wellness. According to the same study, 99% of people who were polled said that they were somewhat or very satisfied with the overall coaching experience. Coaching works. <laughs> I see similar results amongst my clients every week. You can actually read their beautiful in-depth testimonials on my website at modernpsychedelics.net. 
Along with being psychedelics informed, my style is process oriented. We live in this outcome obsessed world where our default mode is to live life for the destination or the end result. But I have come to understand that the gifts are actually in the journey and that's where we grow and learn and enjoy life the most. So that's why I equip my clients with tools and skills for the long game of life and the long game of medicine work. I'm currently onboarding new one-on-one clients into my coaching practice. So if this sounds like it would be supportive for where you're at, get in touch with me. I would love to hear from you. And you can click on the link in the show notes or head to modernpsychedelics.net slash coaching. There's lots of info there for you along with those testimonials. I can't wait to connect with you. That's modernpsychedelics.net slash coaching. Okay, let's go back to the episode. Yeah, like intuition is part of our human operating system. So is logic. So is like our gut or our feeling. I think of all these things as part of our human operating system. But when we're only approaching something through the lens of logic, like you said, it's very narrow. We can't see the full picture. So weaving in that intuition and those gut instincts, what I call holographic thinking, what I learned in coach training, like using logic, intuition, and your gut, it gives us a full and complete picture of what's going on. Like, imagine how leaders all over the world would be different if we all used all of these systems. And it sounds like you're at a place where as a lawyer and as a leader, you're starting to weave in these different ways of knowing beyond logic. It's definitely the beginning, but yes, it's so magical. And I get goosebumps just thinking about it, how intelligent our bodies are. And if you can just pause long enough and I struggle with that (laughs) to sit with those emotions and to feel the feelings before you react yeah our heart our our energy systems are so much more intelligent than our brain not that we don't need both but it was it's been a massive unlearning of the domestication of how I thought and perceived the world and then getting off of Vivian and, and stopping caffeine and things like that and just and slowing has really changed the game for me but definitely not an expert there. We're starting to learn and listen and be more of um, that entire other like toolkit we have that we've just as especially as women have just been taught to ignore and dismiss. And I think that's a big thing with trust too. Like we were taught as I was taught as trying not to trust my intuition and to trust authority and to trust everything else. And now it's like the balancing act of being like, wait a minute, Trust thyself first um, and then be open to your biases and flaws and, and and people with whom you respect and admire. But yeah, it's a lot to unpack. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm so happy that you're on this journey. It's so exciting. Like what a difference since the last time we spoke, because I was just re-listening to our episode this morning and like it was like it was a great episode and very informative, but it was very in the brain. Yeah. It was very logical. It was very like this is what's going on. So it's cool to add in this other layer to the work that you're doing. Thank you. I know I can imagine. My I'm very I was trained very well to be a lawyer. <laughs> Speaking of which, how do you feel about giving us a little update of what's been going on in the legal landscape with the decrim movements with uh, legalization in the states? Yes. In, in the last two years, because um, it was just getting started when we last spoke. Like I think, like Colorado, just and Ann Arbor, and like so much has happened since then. Yeah, because right? 2021. Yep, it's it all started in 2019 with Denver being the first city to 
deprioritize the law enforcement of psilocybin for adults 21 years of age and older. Then Oakland came after that at the end of 2020. And then there was a handful of cities and towns in 2021 that followed that decriminalized nature resolution language, which is like Denver in that it deprioritizes the law enforcement of activities that are non-commercial involving natural psychedelic compounds. So Ibogaine, DMT, mescaline, and psilocybin and psilocin. Peyote has been left out. But yeah, I think there was just a handful. And we had no... I think Oregon had just passed in 2020, but wasn't implemented. So lots has changed. So right now we have about 23 plus municipalities that have passed local policy reform measures. And it's exciting because we're starting to see more creativity in how people can enact policy change across the country. And so, as I mentioned, you know, Denver was a voter initiative. That's also like Detroit and Washington, D.C. Those were all enacted via voter initiatives. And those are ordinances. So they go into the municipal code. All of like, let's say about 18 or so cities have passed the deprioritization resolutions, which is the decriminalized nature model. And that's when a city council or town council, as opposed to the voters, vote to pass legislation that makes it the lowest law enforcement priority in that town or city to arrest individuals who are growing, gathering, and gifting natural psychedelics. We also now have seen people in positions of power in local government make policy statements. So in Michigan, we had a district attorney that released like a statement of enforcement discretion, which was essentially said that, you know, he was not going to use his time and resources to prosecute cases for low-level psychedelics-related offenses by adults. And then most recently this year, the mayor of Minneapolis issued an executive order, which essentially says that in that city, it is the lowest law enforcement priority to investigate and prosecute adults who are engaging in non-commercial, you know, as I mentioned, grow-gather gifting of psychedelics. So you know, implicit call to action here that if you know someone in a city or town who has a position of power within the local government, you can enact change from a practical sense without necessarily having to go through the ballot measure process or even, you know, the the local city legislative process. You can really make a difference by just making a statement um, that's publicly accessible from either like local law enforcement, uh, local positions of authority, such as the mayor or also the district attorney, so those in charge of prosecuting. So it's exciting. We've had, I think, four cities pass this year, more or less, and we're over 20 in the past less than four years or a little over four years since we started this movement. So that's really encouraging. And then in addition, at the state level, we have Oregon accepting licenses and we have our first healing centers that are starting to operate in I can give like a little overview of the Oregon program. It is a regulated access model for psilocybin to be used under supervision. And you don't need to have a particular indication or a doctor's prescription or an illness or anything like that. You just have to be 21 years of age and older. And you can go to a healing center in Oregon, which is a state licensed facility and purchase psilocybin and consume psilocybin under the supervision of a trained facilitator. And so licenses in Oregon that are available include cultivation, manufacturing, 
treatment centers, facilitators, and testing labs. It's vaguely similar to the cannabis programs that you see across the country in that it is all state-run. But unlike cannabis, you can't purchase it and take it home with you. You have to you buy it and use it under the care of that licensed center. And you'll have to do a preparation session. You have your administration session and then you have an optional integration session. But that started in 2020. And then January of this year, the state started issuing or accepting applications for licensure. And now we have at least two healing centers that have opened. About 71 facilitators have been licensed. And we're starting to see the rollout of the nation's first state legal access program for psychedelics, which is incredible. Wow. Wow. That, those are some really big movements and changes. Amazing. What's accessibility looking like, for example, with the Oregon model you just described? Is it accessible to people? Like, what's going on there? So that's a big unknown still. The pricing, the profitability of these businesses is a complicated concept because on the business side of things, you have to think about it's $10,000 if you get your license. So I think a $500 application fee. You have to own or have like full control of the property where you're located. Oregon was allowed to opt out. So not all of the cities in Oregon allow it, but some do. And then you, as I mentioned, you're not having like a purchase and then take it home with you transaction. It's a four to six hour session per person. Yeah. So if you think about, you know, let's say we have a treatment center that has 10 people going at once, you might be able to have one more round of that in a day. And they do allow for group models. I think that's a little bit slower to get started. That will help in the profitability considerations. You know, it's not that many people going through your business every day. So that's on the business side. And that's something that is going to need some fine tuning before you can have the profitability there on top of you're not allowed to make your traditional tax deductions because psilocybin Mm -hmm. is subject to 280e just like cannabis so businesses in the state legal marketplace can't deduct their cost of goods sold like other businesses from a tax perspective so are these private operations or like state-owned private they're private private and not that's probably the least important consideration, but it is an important consideration when you're talking about accessibility because it is very expensive and difficult in America, especially for businesses Mm -hmm. to make money using this model. Not impossible though. And what Mm -hmm. we're seeing, I know there was like a lot of pushback at first because the initial access treatments were listed like in the thousands of dollars and that isn't accessible. It just, it simply is not. And so there's... I think now I've seen something around $700 or something like that. So still very expensive and insurance isn't really covering this. Insurance could potentially cover, you know, integration care with the licensed medical professional if you can code it and frame it in that way. But it's not like you can really get help for this. That is a big problem in Oregon. It's something that Colorado's thinking about as they start to rule make. And it's not, there's no perfect solution yet. There's a huge demand. I know that both of the facilities that have opened are already on wait lists and there's not enough healing centers, one, to employ the licensed facilitators, but two, to service all the people that want access. 
But affordability is going to be a very important discussion as these programs roll out. So we're making progress, we're making movement, but accessibility and cost-wise, we're still not there where people are going towards these legit businesses rather than the underground market. Like It sounds like there's probably still a lot of incentive for people to be going to the black market so to speak, to get these uh, medicines. Yes. Well, in Oregon, yeah, because really they just licensed their first center in May and there's just not enough open, even if, let's say, the pricing did make sense. But yes, especially for people that already have experience in this space, the economics are ideal Mm -hmm. for the normal person to get access to these things. And in Colorado, it's a little different because Colorado actually did decriminalize personal use of all natural psychedelics in addition right. to creating its access model. So there is a greater acceptance of where it's not necessarily called underground or black market anymore unless you're engaging yeah. in like a business transaction. But now you can sit in cool. ceremony in Colorado and share it with other people and grow your own. And that's technically legal in Colorado, which is incredible. As long as you're not charging as for it. As long as you're not charging for it and it's not part of a business um enterprise you can share which kind of creates a like the reverse considerations when it comes to profitability and access in Colorado because there's a lot of investor oriented pushback or concern and they're like well, why would I want to invest in a licensed business in Colorado if people can just do it without the license but there's a, there is a great deal of differentiation between what those um, facilitation programs will look like versus sitting in group ceremony outside of the regulated market. But it's just, yeah, it's a whole new world when it comes to both policy and, and business and accessibility uh, in the United States. Yeah, fascinating. And the last time we spoke, you talked a little bit about equitable access and equal opportunity and about how these medicines should be available not just through the clinical and pharmaceutical models, but also for people who are from cultures that use these medicines as sacraments. What progress, if any, have we seen in that in that access, the equitable and equal opportunity? Colorado, via decriminalization, that implicitly provides more access for that indigenous ceremonial ancestral spiritual use component and that was a discussion and consideration in trying to make decriminalization as broad scope as it is in Colorado they also created a working group to promote more indigenous inclusion in the policy making because there was a lot of pushback in Colorado on the lack of inclusivity when it came to creating the policy, and rightly so. So that was something that was added in the legislation that passed subsequent to the passage of the Natural Medicine Health Act, but nothing particularly concrete in that regard. California has also added a little bit more language in its Senate Bill 58, which is in We'll learn in the next week or so whether that will be viable. And so it's definitely becoming more of the discussion. But 
from a concrete policy standpoint, we still have a lot of work to do in protecting and, and promoting those mechanisms of healing. Yeah. And is that why peyote wasn't included? Because the culture that works with peyote does not want to make it publicly available? Like what was going on there? Yes. Well, peyote has been yeah. the subject of intense debate since Oakland passed its decriminalized nature resolution and general consensus is that it should not be included in any expanded access yeah. legislation until we can provide safe and yeah. um, more sustainable mechanisms to ensure the continued production of peyote. It is a very controversial subject as to decriminalization. Yeah. And, and the argument there is that mescaline is, is more readily available in all sorts of other yeah. different types of cacti. So we... So mescaline is the synthetic. Well, so yes, but mescaline is, is, the, is actually like the compound that's within peyote. But mescaline can be found yeah. in other plants too, like San Pedro. And so San they're Pedro. trying to push yeah. people to use other sources, including synthetic uh, yeah. um, forms of mescaline instead and leaving peyote yeah. alone because it's so sensitive and takes so long to grow and if harvested yeah correctly. like 30 years or something yeah and, like very long and, and it's, it's been and you have to be very careful stripped. about harvesting it or you could kill it and so it's just as yeah. there's so much more interest in these compounds there's we put these kind of delicate yeah. providers at, at greater risk and that goes with 5-MB yes. and combo and all Lots of other yeah. natural sources of healing. Yeah, with policy making and expanding access, it's so important to like listen to the medicine keepers of medicines. Do they want us to use these medicines? Do they want to share them? I really appreciate Iboga for that reason. Um, it's a very kind of thorough process to get permission to serve the medicine if you're doing it the right way and to get permission to bring it from Africa to North America. So it's always like always advisable to to people listening to really do the research on like, does does this provider have permission to share this medicine while the policy around that is still being worked out? No, absolutely. I think whenever I talk to people about who are interested in um, using these compounds is, is it's really important to talk with even if you don't have a great deal of understanding to talk with your potential provider facilitator shaman and get a sense as to their relationship with whatever compound it is whether it's combo or ibogaine or anything because you even if you don't know what the right answer is that's where that intuition and energetic and warning and things can come in because it is so important to work with people that really respect the medicine and not have the an ethical relationship with and, and that can be sussed out pretty easily even if you don't know all the details as to what exactly that should look like and and there's so much interest in serving the medicine which you can't blame anyone for it, it's will intention to help people but we really need to be thoughtful about the sustainability component of things that are coming from um, animals or plants mm -hmm. yeah yeah yeah, and it's good to hear that the policy surrounding it is considering these things, at least to some extent. Also, why working with a direct lineage like we had a chance to at Reunion is so beautiful because, you know, they are coming and sharing their medicine 
um, and wanting to share it. And we're receiving this medicine directly from the medicine keepers, which is just such a beautiful experience. It's not the only way to do it, but it definitely um, makes it feel very special knowing that like you're sitting with a person that like carries this medicine and has within their family name. It is. It's really beautiful and, and provides such like a profound respect for the history and sacred nature of our planet Earth. Whereas I used to not be interested in history at all because that's over with, but it really matters, um, especially yeah. as you go down your spiritual path. Yeah, absolutely. And you also spoke last time about this idea of like law enforcement reform, like even if we are implementing decriminalization uh, legislation and even if that's all happening at the policy level, sometimes the law enforcement isn't actually up to date and they're not actually enforcing it. What changes, improvements, or even maybe backtracking have we seen in that realm in the last few years? There's been a lot more involvement, actually, with law enforcement in the policy process and also from an interest in collecting data. In some of the nonprofits I work with, for example, the Microdosing Collective, They've reached out to law enforcement in Colorado and things like that to get information on, on enforcement changes and, and policy and priorities and things like that. And we're actually seeing a larger amount of law enforcement coming out in um, support of these measures just from a workload perspective of being like, these things really are a priority for us and we need all the resources and time we can get to focus on other things. So that's generally going in the right direction. But it's still true even, you know, when the NMHA passed, there's small towns in Colorado that this isn't a thing for them. They don't care. And it's not a problem until someone gets trouble and tries to call it. And, and actually, there was someone that got in trouble in Colorado or arrested, at least. And the law enforcement officers had to call the district attorney and be like, what are we supposed to do? So there's a great deal of education that we still need to be focused on, both from a user standpoint, you know, the amount of people that I talk to in California that are certain that mushrooms are legal there because it's so accessible is a little concerning, but also from a law enforcement standpoint of understanding the nuances and the policy so that they can make the right choices and we're not putting it on the people to assert their rights, which is you know, how it is. So still a lot of work to do, but we're seeing some favorable progress with law enforcement, at least not taking issue with it. Yeah, it's always like I'm a we were just talking about music festivals and Burning Man and all that. And it's always so fascinating. I feel like when you enter the gates of a music festival, you're like in an alternate <laughs> reality because people are like using all sorts of substances in the open. And a lot of the time it's like in front of law enforcement. And it's like it's an interesting space where that's accept accepted it's interesting isn't it <laughs> it is I mean, there's it's a tricky situation it comes it's a privilege yeah. thing but it's also a it's a luck time and space thing as well but there is a significant amount of increasing tolerance and i and i do believe that is yeah. how the world should be and that these if used responsibly truly are not causing anyone harm but as an attorney, I would not advise you to do that. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. It's like entering. I mean, Burning Man is like its own mini city with its own legislation, technically, right? Because it's that size. But um, I think it's always a peek into 
what responsible substance use can look like with the psychoeducation, with the harm reduction, with the responsibility taken on the space holders and the event goers. So I think that's a nice little like utopia, (laughs) perhaps, to look at, of course, within a recreational setting. Um, On the topic of harm reduction and psychoeducation, something I'm becoming so passionate about myself within recreational spaces, of course, because I think that's where it's the most lacking. Like, where do you see the harm reduction and psychoeducation fitting in with expanded access and policy? On the harm reduction standpoint, I am very hopeful in the sense that whenever, and it's a pretty small group of people that are working on at least the voter-initiated legislation when it comes to like bills and things that are being passed through the legislature, that can vary to a degree. But I always recommend, and it tends to be the case, is when we're doing this policy reform of the Controlled Substances Act at the state level, you do a full review of what is in those like criminal penal codes related to controlled substances. And so it's been really encouraging to see how many states have removed drug testing equipment from their definition of paraphernalia over the past like four or five years, because that's one of the most sort of directly alarming anti-harm reduction pieces of policy that exists in the great majority of our state laws is classifying equipment that would ensure that what you're consuming is safe and pure as its own separate crime. And so that was the case in Colorado. That was removed a couple of years ago. New York, I believe, removed it. Minnesota just removed it recently. And that's like the most, at least in my opinion, direct like harm reduction tool is testing your drugs. In addition, the Colorado includes language about education programs. And I think that will be very, very important, especially for consumers. But what we're seeing with more conservative states and the legislation that's being passed are the creation of working groups within the legislature or state government to study these things. And I think that's a good first step forward in education, which is the state legislatures are saying we have no idea about any of them. We're not ready to kind of open the doors yet, but let's at least do some homework. And I think that's a great step forward, as even though it doesn't feel like the progress we desire with decriminalization and things like that. Um, you know, Texas, there's been so many more states, probably about close to a dozen that have at least passed some sort of research or funding. Kentucky even just passed like a funding bill for engaging in research related to Ibogaine. So we're seeing a renewed interest at the government level in at least revisiting these compounds and learning more about them. But from a local decriminalization, deprioritization standpoint, we are in dire need of um, harm reduction education and groups that are committed to helping people understand the law and helping people understand how to start and work through a psychedelic journey. Because I had to learn that the hard way of, you know, realizing how important it is to have a support team and and, and integration tools because these are very powerful compounds. Yeah, it's not like a pharmaceutical where you just take it. Like it's about the prep, it's about the integration, it's about the experience. It's part of the package. Where do you see the prep and the integration fitting in when it comes to creating policy and expanded access? 
Honestly, if it were my perfect policy after the journeys that I have been on, I would do mandatory integration at least two or three sessions. I mean, it's hard to say what integration looks like, but even if you feel like you don't need to talk to anyone because you had a nice time or, or, or you had a difficult time and you don't want to talk, like you really do need to have someone that one has experience with these compounds, like understands that uniqueness of those experiences. Um, and that's two that's trauma informed or at least just trained and educated. So that way you at least have a sounding board that's not going to dismiss you or discredit you or even just give you kind of a broader perspective on how to potentially interpret your experience, whether positive or negative, because a lot of people go and have these experiences and then they go to try to talk about their friends and family and they just have no clue. And it can end up being like a little alienating. But also for yourself, I'm like, I have never been to therapy. I'm good. I don't need this. And I do believe that it's just so important to take the time if you're going to spend four to 12 hours in a journey to spend another couple hours working on. And and that's honestly, in my opinion, like respect for the medicine too, of just instead of just jumping back into exactly your old self, like give that reverence to. Um, so anyway, put simply, yeah. As someone who rejected integration and thought she didn't need it, I I would require <laughs> at least two or three integration sessions yeah. and then you can yeah. listen to it or not. And the preparation is equally important. My biggest lesson for people who are doing trauma work, from my experience using psychedelics intentionally, is that you know the point of the psychedelic journey is not to go back to those traumatic, painful experiences from childhood or from adulthood or whenever and relive those experiences as if you are re-traumatizing yourself and, and reliving that that painful emotion, but to go into those experiences as your adult contextual compassionate self and provide love and understanding and and forgiveness or, or detachment from those experiences and to not get so caught up in it that you can't remember that separation that this is you're going back here for a reason and not just to punish you. And I think that was like the most profound um, piece of preparation that I have been able to use into going to difficult situations, which is this is not to hurt you again. This is so you can heal. And I think that's I think that's critical for people that are going with fear into those situations or into those experiences. Yeah, again, like what a testament to like how important it is to be doing this work if you're working on the policy and legislative side, because imagine you've never had your psychedelic experiences and you're in charge of creating policy and you don't know how important integration or prep is. It just, it doesn't make sense. And it makes a lot of sense as to like, why it's going so slowly, so much more slowly than we wish it would, because there's just so much to consider. There's so true. many moving parts to consider to roll this out in a safe way. Absolutely. I mean, I even used to say or go because I was a psychology bachelor that I was like back and forth on whether I thought that facilitating and therapists should have psychedelic experiences and whether that would bias yeah. the way that they reach and talk to the people. And I could go on either side. And then after at this point in my life, I'm like, absolutely, you absolutely need to yeah. have that understanding, at least even from your own world experience yeah to have compassion yeah so we've got to walk yeah. the walk but we're all just trying <laughs> yeah i totally agree and yeah just thank you so much for 
doing what you're doing and doing your work while you're doing the lawyering work. I want to end on a question that you can answer however you'd like, whether it's related to psychedelics or personally or professionally, but what are you super excited about right now? What's got you lit up? I am most excited about and nervous about the unknown. It's like the first time in my life I have been totally sober. And I don't mean that again, but like cannabis, vivance, wine at the end of the day, you know, et cetera. Um, and ayahuasca gave me that space to be here. Instagram, that was a big one. I'll be back, but I'm not on there right now. <laughs> yeah. And so just feeling that like raw vulnerability of like, I feel like a, like a naked baby right now. I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. what? How in like how much feeling there is in the world, but I'm excited to continue that journey at least in for the near term future to just have that like real aliveness feeling, like not masking and that disassociating and that um numbing and to see where that goes. It's been very uncomfortable and unnerving so far, but I am very much I think that's what I'm most excited about because I had that revelation the other day, which was like, you've been on something for your entire life. So here we are um, trying to do the human thing. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. Is there anything else that you want to leave our listeners with today? So my, and then my lawyer answer, I would say I'm, I'm hopeful yeah. for California <laughs> that California Civil 58 makes it out of the suspense file and goes to the assembly floor because yeah. I think that would be incredible. And I'm excited for the implementation of Colorado and just really this whole new world that we're creating. We're starting to really get seen and what this movement looks like. So that in my professional answer. But yeah, ask questions. Be curious. Think about it. And this is your one time in this spacesuit of this incarnation. So at least try to like get as much knowledge and experience as you can during this lifetime, whether good or bad. It's all part of it. And always happy to talk. It's all part of it. Feldman Legal Advisors. If you'd like any legal advice. So yeah, reach yeah, us there. Perfect. And you have an email that I'll link in the show notes. Where else can people find you or connect sure. with you? Sure. So on Instagram, I'm the.courtney.era. And that will be coming back soon. And LinkedIn or through FeldmanLegalAdvisors.com. So that's my law firm. Awesome. And I'm always happy to answer questions or talk about experiences and yeah, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you for the work that you do in your journey. It's been it's been so awesome oh. to follow your psychedelic Thank experiences you. as well. I look Thank forward you, to Courtney. the season in two years from now. Who knows where it will be? <laughs> right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming back, for dropping back in. And yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Awesome. We love you so much. We much. love you too. I'll see you soon. <laughs> see ya. Thank you so much for listening to and supporting the show. To stay in touch, sign up for my mailing list, which can be found in the show notes or on modernpsychedelics.net. If this episode sparked something within, please let me know by leaving a review of the Modern Psychedelics podcast on Apple and Spotify. This really helps to share these messages with those who need them, which is the whole reason why I do what I do. And if you haven't already, come join the ongoing conversation over on Instagram with other beautiful souls. We have an incredible and conscious community over at the handle Modern Psychedelics. And don't forget that the work begins after you come back down to earth. And I'm standing shoulder to shoulder doing it with you.